For today's message, I want to drop right into the passage that we're going to be looking at in Acts chapter 27. And I'll be quoting some portions of that passage, but mainly retelling it to set the stage for us. And we'll begin partway through the events as they're described in this chapter. And I invite you to try to picture this scene, right? Because we have this large Roman cargo ship. It's full of Egyptian grain and hundreds of passengers, and it is being battered by an awful winter storm. The masts are bare. The rudder is tied in place to keep it from breaking. Hurricane force winds are blasting this ship wherever they want across the sea. And the crew is trying everything that they can think of to try to keep this thing afloat. They're dumping their precious cargo. They are getting rid of the equipment. They're even passing ropes all the way under the ship and tying them tight to try to keep the ship from falling apart. Everyone is exhausted from this work, from the lack of sleep. Hardly anyone has eaten anything because of the bouncing and rolling of the ship for so long. And Luke, who is the author of this book, was a passenger. And he writes these words about the experience. He says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So you can imagine the, the weakened and frightened sailors and passengers who are so seasick, dejected, maybe a little dead behind the eyes, and at this point, despairing. And then a man steps forward to make an announcement. And the passengers knew of him, but they didn't know what to make of him. He was a prisoner. He was being escorted to Rome by a detachment of Roman soldiers, including a Roman centurion from the elite regiment. And this man treated him with quite a bit of respect, which was a little odd. They knew that he was a religious preacher of some kind, and he'd angered some powerful people, but that was all they really understood about the charges against him. He was Paul of Tarsus, and rumor had it that he had been on many sea voyages. In fact, that he had been shipwrecked three other times, and he had survived somehow. And he didn't look or sound all that impressive, but he had an intelligence and an intensity that made people take notice. And more importantly, at this point, he seemed to be the only person on this boat who did not seem completely terrified and hopeless. And so the people strained to listen to him speak over the howling wind. And he said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, not everybody found that reassuring. An angel had spoken to him. Was that really true? The ship was going to sink? That wasn't great news. But it did give hope to some others. Hope that God was not indifferent to their fate. Hope that they really might come through this alive. Well, that ship survived for 11 more days, still out of control, still driven by the winds across the Adriatic Sea. And now it was midnight. And some experienced sailors could sense that they were getting close to land, and so they they did soundings to confirm it. And then they dropped anchor 
in order to not have the winds drive them up against rocks they couldn't see in the night. And some sailors even tried to sneak off the ship to steal the one lifeboat and, and try to get to the shore they thought was near. But Paul got wind of this somehow, and he told the Roman soldiers about it and that they needed to stop it because these men's skills would be needed in what was coming. And so the Roman soldiers went and they stopped them. They cut the lifeboat loose. They set it adrift so that no one would have that option. From now on, it was going to be all for one and one for all. And with dawn approaching, the people looked again to Paul for leadership and for hope. And Paul told them it was time to eat so that they would have strength to survive. And then he took bread and he gave thanks to God for it in front of them all. And he broke it and he began to eat. And the passengers and the crew, they were encouraged. Paul had faith in God that they would survive and he was acting accordingly. And that was enough for many of them. They at least had some faith in Paul's faith. So they would listen and they would try. And the light of day revealed a sandy beach on the island before them. So they cut their anchors and they hoisted the sails and they made for that beach and they thought they were going to make it until a sickening crash. There was a hidden sandbar that had brought them to a halt. And when the bow was stuck, the, the heavy waves from behind started smashing the ship and breaking it into pieces wave after wave. And so now the centurion, whose name was Julius, he had some choices to make. Because his soldiers wanted to kill Paul and the other prisoners. They faced severe punishment if they allowed any of them to escape in the chaos that was unfolding. But Julius had shown kindness to Paul. There was a mutual respect there. And he wanted another way. And so he convinced the soldiers, no, we're not going to kill these prisoners. We're going to put some faith in Paul and his faith. And so everyone who swam was directed to jump overboard and swim for shore. Everyone else was told, grab onto something that floats and hope that you can make your way in. And maybe you can try to picture that, right? This disintegrating ship with people swimming for their lives through these storm-driven waves. Others are holding on for dear life to planks and to barrels and to broken pieces of the hull, hoping to be swept in the right direction to that beach and to safety. People shouting out to one another trying to keep track of their friends or their family members. Julius trying to establish some kind of order on shore. His soldiers trying to round up all of their prisoners and take account of who was there. And when that count came back, it was 276 souls still alive. The full number of those on board the ship. It's an exciting story. I mean, this is the equivalent of an intense car chase scene as far as ancient literature goes. But I don't think Luke devotes all this space and attention to this story in his book because it's flashy. I think it's because it allows us, and of course the early church audience that it was written to, to be encouraged to have a faith which allows us to trust God and remain hopeful no matter what. The last Sunday we explored some dramatic and dangerous circumstances as well when Paul and Silas were tortured and imprisoned before God busted them out. Their faith helped them to pray and praise, even under very difficult circumstances. And they were still able to show care and concern for those around them, even while they suffered. And I suggested that the ability to do some of that came from this clear sense of purpose that they had. They knew that they had a mission from God. And as they went through this world, it meant that the challenges and oppositions they faced, well, that was to be expected. But God would give them the strength to handle it according to his will. And so that was an invitation for us to recognize the ways in which we have a mission or we have missions 
from God. We, amidst all the difficulties and all the disorientation of the pandemic, there are ways that God gives us to serve others, to represent him well in this world. Now, there are many similarities in this passage. Paul is once again under arrest. He maintains a strong sense of God's leading and that strengthens his faith. And he's able to bring comfort to the people around him through his faithful response to his circumstances. But what I'll try to emphasize in particular this week is the way that his faith in Jesus allowed Paul and allows us to respond to situations of powerlessness in order to produce hope. So powerlessness, like that can be such an ugly feeling, knowing that something you need or something that you want is in the hands of somebody else who may or may not be inclined to help you. When you're flying on a plane, you just have to hope that the pilot is on top of things. There's nothing you can do to make the landing any smoother. That's a form of powerlessness. Or you're in pain, you're suffering some medical issues, and you just have to wait for that call to say that you're going to get this diagnostic or this consultation or this surgery date. You get a positive COVID-19 test and you don't know, is it going to be a really rough course? Is it going to be a really long illness? Have you already given it to somebody else? You see signs maybe that looks like my job's going to be put on hold or it's going to be cut altogether because of what's going on. Or maybe you look at decisions being made by community or government leaders and you think, this is a bad idea, this is a foolish policy, and I'm going to have to live with the fallout. We want to have a say in things. We want to be able to make choices about what happens to us. And when we can't, when we're at the mercy of people or circumstances, well, that powerlessness can make us agitated and anxious. I think there's some of that going on when I see people who are you know, strongly anti-vaccination or who are opposed to pretty much all public health uh, restrictions through the pandemic. The kind of people who I think are especially passionate about this, uh, this freedom convoy I keep reading about that's headed for Ottawa as I, as I film this today. Because we're already pretty powerless to change anything about the pandemic itself. It's this huge external force that's come in and has disrupted everything. But then when you add to that, you know, the government coming in with all these rules, with all these uh, restrictions about what you can and can't do, and it, it seems to want to take control of your life. And then the richest corporations make all this money while the smaller businesses struggle under the weight of restrictions, and that affects people and their livelihoods. And so there is this attraction, I think, to wanting to resist that, to reject that, to protest against that, because you get to feel a little more in control. Because now you're making your own choices instead of doing what the powers that be are telling you to do. And that's not the whole of it. And it's not to say that disagreeing with the powers that be or protesting is always bad. In any, and that's certainly not the case. But I think this is part of what we see. People will do a lot to avoid feeling powerless. Consider Paul in the early uh, part of today's passage. Right? He appears very powerless. He's under arrest. He's got vigilant Roman soldiers keeping a careful eye on him. He's being taken to Rome, and his centurion escort gets to decide when and how that trip happens. And they set sail too late in the season to get all the way to Rome by ship. Then they try to push it just a little bit farther to get to a better port. And Paul tells them it's a mistake. He says, this isn't going to work. This is going to bring ruin on you and your ship. But they won't listen to him. 
And so the powers that be are deciding what he can and can't do. They're getting it wrong. And then this huge external force comes, this storm which disrupts everything. Everybody else on the boat begins to despair. The sailors are ready to give up. The passengers are terrified. And who do people look for to for encouragement and for guidance? They look to Paul for his leadership. Because even though he was, in theory, at least as powerless as the rest of them, he was speaking and listening to God. And he trusted that God was revealing something to him and that God would bring that about. God told Paul that he would reach Rome. He would have his audience with Caesar. And God, uh, Paul had put faith in God that this was true, that he would do what he said he would do, and he told everybody this. Paul ministered to them, and with this peaceful assurance that this would happen, he inspired hope in them as well. He told them that if they listened, if they listened, they would live, and he was proven right. And the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship and the centurion, they were not able to do any of that. All the power that they held before that storm arrived was useless. From a Christian perspective, I think that we are making a mistake if we begin to think that we are, in fact, ever truly powerful or powerless. We're never truly powerful because God gets that accolade. A person might be put in a position where they get to wield a lot of power, for a time at least, but that, that is always power on loan from God. It's power that God can take away in an instant. I mean, how powerful is anybody, really, if somebody else gets to decide whether they wake up and draw breath each and every day? And we're also never powerless when we follow Jesus. As his disciples, we gain access to God's power. In some of Paul's other writings, we see that he often prayed for people to receive that power. Ephesians 3.16 says, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And 2 Thessalonians 1.11 says, In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith. Or consider that Paul himself had some combination uh, of things that hindered him medical condition, a speech impediment. People have suggested lots of things for what Paul called a thorn in his flesh. But whatever it was, he asked God to take it away, to heal it, and God did not. And Paul thought he came to recognize why. And he wrote, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is another one of God's upside-down kingdom kind of things where the opposite of what we might expect is true in the ways that God works. When we are weak, when we recognize and accept that in fact we are powerless, that we need God, when we learn to trust and depend on God more, that is when we become strongest of all. Because that's when we really start using God's strength instead of our own. And that was all Paul had in that storm-tossed sea, that faithful dependence on God. 
And it was strong enough to save the lives of 276 people, to glorify God through it all by delivering on his promise. And really, that's just the beginning. You can read a little farther in the story for yourself and find out what happened when Paul got to shore and all of the things and the impact that that had on the people of that island. Those with faith, with humble and honest faith, they're never powerless. It doesn't mean we can make situations work out exactly the way we would prefer. But it does mean we can have peace and confidence that God will work for our good and for his glory, whatever happens. Now, hope is a wonderfully powerful thing. In this case, it was far more powerful than money or influence or connections or authority or skill. None of those things saved those lives. It was hope. Hope that Paul had because of his faithful dependence on God and that hope rubbed off on everybody else. If you poke around the New Testament for examples of hope, you'll see that there are two main types that are spoken about. There's hope for circumstances, right? Hope that things will go well for someone or for some group or hope for those enduring hardship. But more often the hope being spoken of is the eternal variety. It's the hope of eternal life. It's the, the hope that Jesus promised and then demonstrated through the resurrection. Hope that we are made for more than this. And that whatever the struggle or the hardship, whatever we experience in these brief lives of ours, it's nothing in comparison to the glorious life that awaits us. Paul, once again in his letter to the Christians in Corinth, wrote, If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, then we should be pitied more than anyone. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If our hope does not extend beyond this world, beyond these present circumstances, then it's just not worth much. Paul had hope that he would survive the storm along with everyone else, but his greater hope was that he belonged to God, that he was a child of God, that he was forever part of the family of God no matter what happened. And so when we face difficult circumstances, we can respond in faith that gives us both kinds of hope. We can believe and ask for God's help to believe that God will make a way through whatever it is we're facing, that he will give us strength and allow things to work out for our good and his glory. And at some point, we also have hope that he will call us to our true home in his kingdom, where we, again, have hope that the most joyful reunion imaginable will take place. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not describe the general feeling of our world today as hopeful. There are many people badly stressed by the pandemic. I've been reading more and more stories of people who aren't sure about having children or who've decided not to have children because of the threat of climate change on the future. Or those who are concerned about economic subjugation to massive corporations. And of course, World War III is, you know, always a possibility. Or we can just go for hours complaining about the much smaller problems with everyone and everything in our everyday lives, too. And that's what tends to happen if everyone around us is doing these things. We need more hope. And the world needs more hopeful people. So will you be one of them? Because you may need to tune out or reduce your exposure to some external voices telling you, that everything stinks and we're all doomed, the news and the social media and the pessimistic friends or relatives or any other source that just keeps telling you the message that you should despair, that you should stop caring, that you shouldn't bother trying, that you shouldn't waste your time 
by, and then just join the chorus of, of outrage and complaints instead of actually doing things that might be helpful or encourage someone in your life? Can we reduce that in order to be people who bring hope? You may also need to ignore and reject some internal voices too. The ones that pop into your head and tell you, you know, maybe just give up because nothing you've done has made a difference anyway. Right? Or that there's no road back from the failures that you have in your life, so stop trying. Or that God does not have a place for you in what he's doing for some reason. Or that nagging sense that, you know, you're not, you're just not good enough. Friends, these are lies straight from the devil himself. They are not true. They cannot be true. If Jesus really did go to the cross for you and for me, and took the penalty of sin on himself and has given us new life when we put our faith in him. Loving God, may these lies just never rob us of hope or distract us from things that really matter. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. You and God know exactly what storm you're sailing through right now and just how fierce it is. But I don't know many people who would say that right now it's smooth sailing for them. There are many things happening that are out of our control that can leave us feeling powerless or like our needs and our voices don't matter. But you are not powerless. Jesus has promised his followers abundant and eternal life. Do you believe him? Can you trust him? And sometimes the best I can answer that question is to echo one man's response to Jesus in the New Testament when he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith is not something that we gain by just trying to believe harder. It's, it's a gift from God. It's something we need to ask for day by day. So I invite you to join me in asking for it now. Lord Jesus, help us to be hopeful. Help us to be hopeful so that the, the cross and the empty tomb mean that when all is said and done, we will be in your perfect presence forever. Help us to live each day of our present lives in light of that. You have already won the victory. We have the privilege of trying to know you who is worthy of our praise and trying to help others meet you too. Today, give us truth. Help us to see clearly what we should confess to you so that our sins can be forgiven. And help us to recognize and reject the lies of our enemy that tells us that we are less than the precious and purpose-filled people who you have chosen to empower in order to bless this world. Today, give us perseverance. These storms we face are real. They are not easy. But the journey is worthwhile. The final destination is where you are. And you have placed many blessings along the route. Help us to see and receive these with thanksgiving. Today, Lord God, give us faith. Help us to be sure that you will provide everything that you have promised. 
and even more sure of your unending love for us. These things I ask in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.